Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. always love uh, getting back in here. Um, but let's get right at it. I can remember the day I lost my innocence. I, I, I was um, I was very young, very young. I was in elementary school, but I can remember vividly where I was in my house and who was there at the time. I had come home from school and I had learned a song at school from some of uh, my friends, and it was sung to the tune of uh, "My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean." You know that song. It's, uh, it goes, my Bonnie lies over the ocean, my Bonnie lies over the sea, my Bonnie lies over the ocean, so bring back my Bonnie. Right, and there's a chorus, and it goes, bring back, bring back, oh, bring back my Bonnie to me, to me, bring back, bring back, oh, bring back my Bonnie to me. It's an old church. The, uh, um... Well, there was an off-color parody of the song that was going around at the time in my school. And some friends of mine in school had learned it, and they were singing it. had a kind of catchy rhyme to it. So I learned the words, and I was excited about sharing it with my family. I had absolutely no idea, no idea what the words meant. Uh, I wasn't even curious about them. The words were speaking of things I had at that point in my life, absolutely no knowledge about. So they didn't even stir up in me a sense of the forbidden. Uh, I didn't know that the song was speaking of things that my parents would find uncomfortable or inappropriate. Now, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the alternative words to the song, for obvious reasons. If you need to, to know them, Dick Lane, I'm sure, knows all those songs. <laughs> and the words, really, they aren't that bad or naughty, uh, just a little racy and body and off color and kind of just celebrate the facts of life. And my mom undoubtedly, uh, overreacted to it when she heard it. But I grew up in this pretty conservative, actually prudish home and these kinds of things were just not talk up, talked about, let alone sung in an enthusiastic manner by a little boy. At any rate, I walked in the door of my home and my mom and older sister were there. My sister was four years older than I and much wiser in the ways of the world at that time. And um, I said, I learned a new song in school today. And I started to sing it with all the gusto I could muster. And when I got to the lines that were especially intriguing, uh, I saw my sister slap her hands over her mouth and look at me wide-eyed and in disbelief. And my mom literally shrieked And said, Kent, where did you learn that song? You must never, ever, ever sing that song again. Do you understand me? I was shocked. Of course, in a moment, I was embarrassed. I mumbled a few words of innocence. And I said such something like, what? What What does it mean? I don't even know what it means. And my mom said, never mind. It is a naughty song. And you are never to sing it again. Well, it's been almost 60 years. Uh, since I sang that song in the living room of my house on the south side of Chicago, it is a very vivid memory still, and I remember every single word of that song. <laughs> when I sang it, I had no idea what it meant. 
but I knew it had to be about something really bad. But in that moment, I remember this intense curiosity about discovering the secret of this whole area of the universe that apparently everybody else in the world knew considerably more about than I. As I said, it's been almost 60 years since that day, and that innocence I had at that moment as that little boy has long since been lost. Just like you, my eyes have been widely opened to the dark realities of this world. Not just the stuff out there, but the stuff in here as well. I have seen things that I wish I'd never seen. Heard things I wish I'd never heard. I've thought things that I wish I'd never thought. I've done things that I wish I'd never done. I know things that I wish I did not know anymore. And I, as well as others, have experienced the darkness that lies within our own hearts, right? And I find myself so often longing to live in a place of untainted purity, of unmarred innocence, of unblemished beauty, of unbridled joy. But that's not the world we live in, is it? The world we live in is not so innocent. And living in this often ugly, violent, selfish, cruel world, well, that after a period of time, that takes its toll on us. It harms us. It seems to me that we are living in an increasingly jaded and cynical world. And there is a great danger that we can become increasingly jaded and cynical ourselves, and this is progressively damaging to our souls. It's very hard to live well and deeply with God and to love deeply the people of this world when cynicism and a kind of jaded loss of innocence begins to infect our inner world. I know this dangerous cynicism firsthand. It has infected and influenced my life uh, too many times. Just like you, I've seen so much of the religious falsity and hypocrisy that is so prevalent in our world. And it is so distasteful to me that I have often protected myself from it and insulated myself from it with a kind of superior, elitist, and it's embarrassing to say this, but a kind of arrogance that believes that I see the world much more clearly and honestly than most everybody else. But the cost of this cynicism, this arrogant belief that I know better, that I am above such things, that's, that's a terrible price to pay. I can lose my sense of wonder and childlike amazement at the glory of this world we live in. I can lose sight of what an incredibly beautiful world that it, this is and how every square inch of it is jam-packed full of God and His glory. If we have the eyes to see, ears to hear. And I often think that innocence, a recreated, reimagined innocence, what Paul Ricoeur referred to as the second naivete, is what is needed in our day. We need to be able to more firmly appreciate and to revel in and to celebrate this God-bathed world. So here's our challenge today. How can we understand and interact with a world that is filled, on the one hand, with such awe-inspiring beauty and goodness, and yet, on the other hand, with such soul-destroying ugliness? We must ask ourselves this very crucial question. Which is the real world we live in? The world where little girls are stolen and placed into forced prostitution? 
a world of crooked politicians, hypocritical religious leaders, greed-filled multinational corporations, a world of hunger, violence, oppression, cruelty, death. Or a world where every square inch is filled with God and his glory, a world that is just absolutely beautiful and wonderful. Which vision of this world is the most real? Which vision of this world is the most powerful? Which vision of this world will last forever? Is it possible to recapture a kind of innocence? Is it possible, as Ronald Rawlheiser says it, to recapture the posture of a child before reality? Would this even be a good thing? What kind of a person can live in a world as ugly and as brutal as ours often is? and yet still rigorously believe that it is a beautiful world and every square inch of it is filled with God and His glory. Is such a person seeing the world as it really is, with eyes that are open to a greater reality, or is such a person merely whistling in the dark, kind of the proverbial ostrich with its head in the stand? That's what I'd like us to reflect together on today. And to get us started, let us give our attention to the Word of God, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. You can stand at this point if you so desire. It's uh, on some page there in the Bibles around if you want to follow along. Just 10 verses. Give your attention to the Word of God, please. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. You could be seated. Now, I know some of you are going, uh-oh, Kent didn't know that Colleen spoke on this same passage uh, uh, two or three weeks ago. I know that. We both picked this passage uh, as the soul-stirring, uh, separate from each other, it's a soul-stirring story that we wanted to reflect on. Colleen, as you know, if you were here, she centered her thoughts on Peter and John in this story and how God used them, what they had to perform this extraordinary miracle. And Colleen did a wonderful job of unpacking that passage uh, for us from Peter and John's perspective. But I'm going to take the same passage and have us consider the story, this story, from the perspective, perspective of the beggar who got miraculously healed. There are two verses, verses 7 and 8, that I want us to center our attention on today. Here they are. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. So let's imagine this. This man has been uh, disabled since birth. He had never walked in his entire life. He had to be carried everywhere he went. He was completely dependent upon others. 
Most undoubtedly, he was neglected most of the time. He was left alone. His leg muscles had atrophied. Every day he was placed at this temple gate called Beautiful. Every day for perhaps his entire childhood and adult life, he sat in the dust as crowds of people walked by, and he'd have his hand extended asking for money. He has most likely been abused, hit, made fun of, yelled at his entire life. People didn't want to look at him. He made them uncomfortable. People didn't want to know his story. Because in doing so, they'd have to face the illusion of their own immortality and the frailty of this life. Sometimes, I'm sure, perhaps often, hopefully, he was treated with kindness and given gifts, a, a kind word, a prayer. But mostly he was alone. Left with his own thoughts. Who, who knows what kind of despair was built up inside him. But imagine this. Every day he has to sit in the dust. When he, he has to crawl someplace further away to, to go back to the bathroom and then crawl back. Beg for money. And it's the same thing. Day after day after day his whole life long. What went on inside his soul? Was he angry? Did he curse God in this cruel and brutal world? Or did he just go numb? Did he teach himself not to think, to not feel, to not care? What did he think of all day long? What occupied his mind as he sat in the dust begging? We don't really know anything about the state of his soul, but we can imagine. We can try to imagine what it would be like after multiple decades of living like that. I can imagine developing a kind of raw, elemental selfishness. Total preoccupation with simply surviving another day. Kind of resignation to this miserable existence. A development of despair, cynicism. Perhaps the cruelty of this world created cruelty in him. People are dangerous. So I must protect myself from them. Or people become means to an end. Help me survive. And I become, after a while, less than human. I become a wounded animal, ready to lash out, bite anyone who comes too close. A man without hope, a shell of a human being. And yet he gets healed. Uh, Jesus comes, or Paul comes, or Peter comes along, one of those Bible guys. Uh, Peter, Peter comes along and John, and they, God heals him through them. And what does he do? Immediately he starts jumping around. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a metaphor. He was literally jumping around. These legs that have been useless his whole life, they all of a sudden start working. He wants to take them for a, a test drive. And he's jumping all over the place, hallelujahing and you know, praising God and whooping and hollering. It's just total joy. He's like a kid at Christmas. All these decades of crawling around, sitting in the dust, begging for food, they're gone. They're not the story any longer. The story is this. I can walk. I can jump. Look how high I can jump. So here's a question I want all of us to wrestle with today. When have we last been so overwhelmed by the goodness and beauty of this world, by the miracle that God has done or is doing in our lives, that I break out into dancing and jumping around and shouting and hooping and hollering? 
Is it whooping? Whooping. Whooping? Whooping. Okay, thanks. I don't know if I've ever said that word out loud before. And I know that some here, because I already can read the thought bubbles over your head, uh, you're going to say, Kent, I'm not wired like that. Here's the bandwidth of my emotions. Here's what I look like when I'm really excited. Here's what I look like when I'm really sad. There's just not a lot of movement in there. You know, good for this healed beggar, but uh, I'm a bit more reserved than that. Well, I think that reasoning has a little bit of blah, 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 blah to, to it in my mind. Sure, obviously, everybody knows that some people are more demonstrative by nature than others. But what if this guy was the most reserved guy in the world? What if he had the emotional range of a rock? But he just had a door open to an invisible world. And when that happens, polite smiles, reserved half-smiles are, they're just not enough. You've met God, you've seen this invisible world, and it's glorious, and you can't help but jump. Dance. Whooping and whooping and hollering. Whatever the top range of your emotional, uh, the, t- the top end of your emotional range is, when's the last time our experience of this God-bathed world has caused us to bump up bump up against the top of that range and crash through it and out comes some kind of unbridled joy. You can't contain it. If we haven't had one of those experiences for a long time, why is that? What keeps us from walking and jumping and praising God? It's because we see the world as it actually is and it's pretty awful and there's no good reason, really, for walking around and jumping and praising God. Or, or, are we actually not seeing this world as it actually is? And we are trapped in a kind of stone-cold cynicism, and we are blind to how good and beautiful this world actually is. And we are shut down emotionally as a way to protect ourselves from the wounds of this life. What would it cost us? What barriers would we have to break through? What story or narrative that we cherish in our hearts would we have to reject? What, what, what ways of protecting would we have to walk away from? in order to start jumping and dancing and shouting and give ourselves over to joy. What would it cost us? All I want to do today is to think of this healed beggar as a role model for us. He's here today in this story to teach us how to be a child again. In Rawlheiser's words, to recapture the posture of a child before reality. So let's think of this from the perspective of a child and innocence, and let's uh, consider the beginning of innocence. Could you grab, is my phone down there? Because I have no, could you uh, throw it up here or walk it up to me? I have the, there used to be a clock back there. So I would just go for hours if I don't have something to go for. So, what's that? Oh, it's right there. Thank you. Oh, well, I don't need this anymore. I can catch the Cub scores. I can multitask. When we turn to the opening chapters of the Bible, we read the account of the creation of human beings, of the first man and woman. The Bible says that human beings, man and woman, were created in the image of God. Great, now my daughter's calling me. That is not funny. That is not. Ushers, get her out of here. That's like a sin. They were given the task of caring for uh, this good earth that God had created.
created, managing it. And after this creation, God, as it were, stepped back and took a look at the crown of his creation, the man and the woman, and he said, this is very good. And then as the Genesis account describes the relationship between the man and the woman, it says this very interesting thing about them. It says the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. They felt no shame. There are a couple things here, uh, to me at least, uh, that come across with great clarity. The first, it seems obvious, that the first man and woman, before they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was an innocence in them. They are untainted with evil. Their lives were uncorrupted, pure. They lived a life in full communion with their Creator, and there was no alienation, no sense of duplicity, no fragmentation of desire, no mixed motivation. They lived before the starting reality of the startling immediacy of reality with singular and undivided hearts. It was paradise. No good thing was held back from them. In those moments, they lived with something that no human being has truly lived with since satisfaction. And then there's another equally remarkable truth we see here about this first man and woman. It says that the man and his wife were naked and they're not ashamed. This is a wonderful thing to reflect on. For I'm certain it's not only their physical nakedness that is considered here, although that's certainly there, but also their complete psychological and spiritual nakedness. They live before each other and before their creator in a posture of complete transparency, hiding nothing, total intimacy. And here's the kicker. There was no shame. No shame. Let's reflect on that for a moment. Let's think honestly and as deeply as we can about this. Imagine an existence where there's no pretending. No energy expended upon keeping up the con that every single one of us is trying to pull off on the rest of the world. No pretending, no posturing, no image management, no fear of what others might think, no manipulating, no hiding but rather an intimate openness, an immediacy, an open-handed existence, the receiving of others with grace and goodness, no worries about what someone else might take away from us, but simply being with each other and God and not having the slightest twinge of shame. Can you imagine what that would be like to live like that for just one day? Well, this is how we are created. With this kind of innocence. As we all know the, the state of being did not last very long in our world and all of us in it have lost this innocence and this is a fallen and broken world. The Genesis account of the loss of innocence is well known to many people. The woman and man are tempted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they succumb to the temptation. The Bible says that after they had eaten the eyes of both of them were opened and notice the first thing it says as soon as their eyes are opened they realize they were Naked. They realized they were naked. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then right after that, it says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, Where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So let's reflect on what we've seen so far. The man and the woman have lost their innocence. They experience fear. They realize they are naked and they feel shame and guilt and they begin to hide not only their bodies, but their very selves from each other and from God. And sin and disobedience has entered the world and our innocence has been lost and planet Earth has never been the same since. But that's a larger kind of more cosmic 
picture of the loss of innocence or the fall of humankind or the entrance of sin into the world. But we know this cosmic truth, this loss of innocence in a far more personal way, don't we? We've seen it in our own lives and the lives of those we love. One of the most painful parts of being a parent is watching our children get older. And not so much because we want to cling to them and keep them young and close to us, although sometimes that's the case. But it's mostly painful because we have to watch them lose their innocence, their wonder, uh, the amazement uh, with which they experience the world, this, their fierce joy, their delight. It happens when they face rejection by a friend for the first time, when they discover that the world is not the way they thought it was, when their world collapses at the divorce of their parents and everything is kind of thrown off kilter. When they choose not to cry this one painful time, but instead decide to bury their sadness deep down inside themselves in order to keep from being hurt again. When they begin to doubt themselves, when they think they are no good, when they welcome and embrace shame, when the nasty and ugly realities of this world harm them. And we as parents mostly have to stand by and watch. It's a hard thing, I know, you know. This is the way it is in this world. With children and also with adults. The raw and stubborn existence of reality confronts us all. And we leave childhood and we're no longer 10. We're 15 and then 20. And by that time we're already compiling an impressive resume of harmful interactions with this world. And we move to our, through our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and 50s and on and on we go. And all the time we're losing our innocence. And so often along with that, our ability to see that every square inch of this world is filled with God and His glory. And for many of us, the poison of cynicism begins to creep in. We discover that everybody is out for themselves. Everybody is playing some kind of con, working some kind of angle, and nothing is really as it seems. And we protect ourselves from the harsh realities of a world filled with pretense and pretending by this tired and crusty layer of cynicism. If we stop believing there is purity, we think, and goodness, and startling beauty in this God-bathed world, then we will not be so easily hurt by all that is impure and evil and ugly. And so we keep our distance, and we throw stones, and we become the disabled beggar sitting in the dust, begging. And nothing touches us so easily anymore. And the horrible cost to this is that we are blinded to the reality of the kingdom of God that is more beautiful and more powerful and more real than anything else in this tired and fallen world. And then on top of all that, we discover our own moral corruption as well. And we come face to face with our own spiritual depravity. Our own ravenous capacity for harming not only ourselves, but the people we love. And we begin to see our own very personal loss of innocence. We see how divided and fragmented and how imprisoned we are by our own disordered and unruly desires. And we long, don't we, for another way of living? And this realization can be a great gift to us if it causes us to recognize our desperate need for God and His grace to rescue us. There's a way to pursue a kind of pretend innocence, though. I, I just want to mention quickly what I would call blind innocence. I think it's very dangerous to our soul. Some people try to recapture innocence in a way that blinds us to the actual world in which we live and keeps us from loving this world that is precious to God. 
For some people, the, the harsh realities of this fallen world are so horrible, so disturbing, so incomprehensible that they simply refuse to live honestly in the midst of all that. People with blind innocence live with the kind of Pollyanna attitude that everything is better than it really is. They choose to only acknowledge the good in this world and they simply turn their eyes away from the evil, pretending as best they can that it doesn't exist. You see, the real world, the one we live in, has lost its innocence. There's real tragedy here. You know this. There's real hurt, real pain, real loss. And we do not do ourselves or anybody any favors by pretending otherwise. We live in this world, in a, in a world where during the time it takes me to do this message, hundreds of children will die of malaria. Children will starve to death. Unspeakable things will happen to children across this great nation of ours. The truth is this world is an awful place at times because this world is fallen and it's broken and it's in trouble and it needs to be rescued and it needs to be redeemed. And innocence that ignores this aspect of our world or hides from it, that does not want to be confronted with it, this is a blind and dishonest innocence. There's another way in which we embrace blind innocence and this is when we nurture a kind of disdain for this world. This is happening all too often. We look around at all that is evil and the people who do in our minds evil things and we develop a form of contempt, a cold lack of love for this world. We look at the prostitute on the street corner or the drug dealer or the radical revolutionary or even someone who just holds a different political or lifestyle position than we do. Or anybody who's radically different from who we are. And we fail to love them. In fact, we nurture contempt, disdain, This is the nature of almost all political dialogue in cable news today. It's wrong. We forget that it is this broken, fallen, and ugly world filled with these specific people that is precious to God. And the recapturing of our innocence will never come from pretending or from hiding, certainly not through contempt or hate, but only through loving this world and all who are in it. When we treat others with contempt, when we write them off, When we look down upon them with judgment, we forget that we're made of the very same stuff and we are all fallen creatures who need to be redeemed. Innocence will never be recaptured by pretending or hiding or hating, but only by believing in the power of God's love to transform lives. Which moves me to my last point, recapturing innocence. There was this one time in the ministry of Jesus that, as was often the case, he was swamped by people to come into him. In this one situation, there were all these parents who wanted to bring their children to him and have Jesus place their hands on them and, and, and bless them. And the disciples, for some reason, thought this was a bit excessive. Jesus didn't have time for this. So they tried to shoo the parents away from Jesus. But the scripture says this in Luke chapter 18. But Jesus called his children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, we must remember when we think of this passage that the kingdom of God here is not referring to heaven when we die. It is referring to experiencing the reality of the rule of God in our lives today. Right now, on this earth. And what Jesus is saying here is painfully obvious unless we can learn to approach God like a little child approaches life with trust and innocence and perhaps even more importantly an acute and unapologetic awareness of their need and going to people for this need to be met and expecting to be cared for. Unless we live like that, we will never be able to live under the rule 
of God. For we will always want our own way, our autonomy, our independence. I love that Jesus used the example of children here, for we can learn a lot from them. We should watch them very often. We should sometimes just simply as a spiritual practice sit in a room of children and watch them. Get down on the floor with them. Play with them. For they often know far more about the kingdom of God than we do. What is more, in so many ways, they are more like God than we are. G.K. Chesterton says that God has the eternal appetite of infancy. God has the eternal appetite of infancy. But we have sinned and grown old and our Father is younger than we. You could almost picture this world we live in as this sanctuary. Okay, You could see cars going by there, but that's just a movie screen. Right? Nothing. This is the world. This is the sum total of the universe in this sanctuary. And when we are very small children, this sanctuary seems huge and full of all sorts of places to run around and to explore. And each new discovery tells us that this world, this sanctuary, is full of wonderful surprises. Um, and you see this all the time. I see children running around here, crawling in on top of those chairs where they're going to get destroyed. But they're ch- checking everything out, and they're just screaming and hollering and climbing under chairs, and it's, it's beautiful to watch. We live with a sense, then, of wonder, of awe, of expectation. But then we get bigger, and we get older, we get wiser in the ways of the world, and we've seen most of the places in this auditorium, or at least we've seen enough places to begin to believe that there aren't really that many surprises left anymore, and that this world is just really a big, closed box. We look at the little child who is amazed by the box and we smile at her, but we know better. And there is something inside us that says, um, she'll learn. Let her live her little fantasy life now. Uh, But sooner or later she'll learn, just like all of us, that it's just a box. But what if, what if we were wrong that this sanctuary is all there is? What if, if we only had the eyes to see, in a little corner of the sanctuary, way back up there, there's a small little peephole. And if we look through it, we, we would find that outside this little box of ours is a world far more glorious, far more wonderful, much larger than anything we ever imagined. And as we gazed out into this glorious world, we would become like a little child again. And we would be amazed and filled with wonder, and we would not be able to contain our joy. But we have sinned and grown old. And our father is younger than we. So here's the question. Is the box all there is? Or is there more? Is there a way to live where we can recapture the posture of the child before reality? Where we're not just looking out of some little tiny hole in a box, but where we pop the lid off the box. And we're sticking our heads outside and reveling in it all and celebrating what a glorious world this is. And we're fully alive to it where we begin to deeply believe that the kingdom of God is real, more real than anything else in this universe, and it is advancing and nothing can stop it. And we can learn to begin to live fully in this reality, even in the midst of an often ugly and brutal world. I truly believe we can learn gradually, slowly, over a lifetime, to live in this way, to recapture our innocence. This is what happened to this dude in Acts 3. He's been sitting in the dust, crawling around, begging for food his entire life. Maybe there was a time when he was just a tiny child that he didn't know he was disabled. He didn't know he was different. 
where he had joy and wonder all the time, where all his needs were met and he was loved and he was cared for and he delighted in his existence. But then one day, his innocence was lost. He discovered that he was different, that he couldn't play with the other children. And somewhere along the way, he was given the job of begging for food and the world became cold and heartless and drudgery sets in and sadness. The world is something to be endured and its innocence was lost. The world was just a box. And his job was to try and stay alive, although he had long forgotten what the point was of staying alive. Still he clung to existence as a kind of elemental, animalistic, instinctive kind of thing. The world was just a box. And the only surprises anymore are the discovery of more ways that people can be cruel. But then Jesus comes along. He pops the lid off the box. He opens a window into an entirely different, invisible world that is more glorious than anything he has seen. And he starts jumping around and praising God. He just starts jumping around and praising God. Mike Lucan and I were with uh, Dallas Willard. Not Well, before he died, that makes sense, right? Um, it would be anyway. I won't go there on that time. But uh, we were spending the day with him, and we were talking about joy. And we asked him, "What practical thing could we do to increase joy in our lives?" And we're going to do that last song, so you guys can start walking up here if you're whoever you are, and kind of get there. So we said, "Dallas, what kind of practical thing can we do to increase joy in our lives?" And Dallas thought for a moment. He said. I think I would try skipping. (laughs) I think it would be very hard to be sad when you are skipping. Mike and I just sat there for a while and looked at him and go, what? But, I mean, I thought about I'm not going to do it because I'd rather do the song and it would be too weird. But I was thinking just bringing a few people up here and just doing a little quick interview. How are you feeling right now? Okay. You got a lot of stuff on your plate? Yeah. Okay, for the next uh, 30 seconds, you're going to skip across the stage. You know, just skip. And then come back and say, how are you feeling now? I feel a little better. You know, there's something about getting our bodies in, in, involved in things. So let me finish with the question I asked earlier in this message. It may be good to skip. I mean, if you're still physically capable, don't, you don't have to get much distance off the ground. But maybe a little bit. Do a little, yeah. Get some ice ready for afterwards. But. <laughs> Let me finish with the question I asked earlier in this message. What would it cost us? What barriers would we have to break through? What story or narrative that we cherish in our hearts would we have to reject? What ways of protecting would we have to walk away from in order to stop jumping, start jumping and dancing and shouting? And to give ourselves over to joy. What would it cost us? We're going to sing the song here in a moment. And um, we're not going to like ask you to come up here and dance on the stage. But there's some words in here that if you just stand still while you're singing it, that's just weird. So um, <laughs> think about that. Give yourself a little bit of permission. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, eternal 
triune God. You have lived in eternity past with joy. You had fun. You were not lonely. You did not run out of things to do. You lived with unbridled joy and love and goodness and community. And out of this love and community and goodness, you have created us. And you invite us to enter into this Trinitarian community and to experience this joy. That's the real world. That's the invisible world. And so as we go about our days this week with all the drudgery, all the hurt, all the pain, all the ugliness, the cruelty, please, in uh, whatever way we are open to, break through some of that and give us joy. And let us know that there is a bigger story. It is more than just a box. It is a world we live in that is jam-packed, filled with God and His glory. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.